problem with going after elite sport first um, as if I was to look at, you know, as a whole new new companies in, entering the industry is that you can get chewed up and spat out very easily in elite sport if you if you sort of have a few of the wrong people unimpressed by what you've got to offer. Um, it's a fairly small community. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. That's right, you're listening to Sports Tech Feed. I am your host, Tom Salomes. Thank you for joining us once again this week. We've got a great show lined up with Sam James from Val Performance. So Val are one of the leaders in athlete testing around the world, working with the majority of NFL, English Premier League teams, uh, Major League Baseball, NRL, AFL, and also a host of lower league teams. So definitely an authority to share some of the insights on building a company in the human performance space, uh, trends that they're seeing in that area, especially moving into computer vision. If you'd like to see the show notes or some more episodes, you can always go to sportstechfeed.com. Also opportunity there to leave any feedback or suggestions. But let's get straight into it. This is Sam James from Val Performance. Welcome to Sports Tech Feed. Sam James uh, from Val Performance. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. No worries. And so you're the uh, co-founder and also director of Europe for Vald. I, I am, yeah. So it's been, uh, I think, five years since we started the business now, and I've held a, a few, a few different, uh, worn a few different hats over that time. So I started as CTO uh, for the first couple of years of the business. Uh, moved into uh, as uh, role as director of marketing and client relations after that, sort of once we were up and running and a few more clients under our belt that needed supporting. Um, and subsequent to that, I've moved over to the UK where I'm, I'm heading up our uh, European uh, sales and support and education team based over here. Um, so yeah, I'm jack of all trades, master of none, essentially. <laughs> That's all right. That's what every startup needs. So, uh, and and I, I guess I wouldn't even call you a startup now. You're very accomplished uh, business in in human performance. Can you share a little bit about uh, what your solutions are and, and kind of the problem you're solving? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we, um, yeah, we, we probably are past the the stage where we're a, a startup anymore. But we certainly like to like to retain elements of that. Um, I think we're we're 70-ish people in the business these days. Um, but yeah, so the the company was kind of uh, born out of research at uh, the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane where um, a, a bunch of us or most of us who were in the business in the early, early stages are from and most of us studied at QUT as well. Um, so there are a couple of uh, sports scientists there, uh, Dr. T- uh, Tony Shield and Dr. David Opar, who basically... We're already doing research uh, in the AFL, um, so they had some good relationships with a bunch of the teams, and they'd already been looking into injuries and all kinds of associated things over there, um, the research they'd been doing previously. But they were looking to embark on a study where they'd look at <clears throat> specifically um, eccentric hamstring strength, so one of the contraction modes of the hamstrings, and how that related to, to injury risk. And there was basically there was no product that they could buy off the shelf to do what they needed to do in order to collect the amount of data that they needed to. Um, so they built a, a, a prototype, which was never even really meant to be a prototype. It was just a lab tool um, in order to take out into the field and measure hamstring strength uh, with these teams. Um, and then sort of after the fact, they realized that these teams sort of wanted to have one of their own once they'd given it a try and then started to think, well, okay, maybe there, maybe there is something to this. Um, then the Queensland University of Technology, their commercialization arm, um, uh, got involved at that point, um, linked up with uh, Tony and David and filed for a patent on the device that they designed, um, helped fund the remainder of Dave's PhD, which they went on to publish some really interesting research in, um, just garnered more and more interest from the AFL, but then their publications also started to um, uh, I guess, get interest from, uh, in particular, the US and UK as well, but all around the world. Um, so these guys were getting emails from uh, Man City, PSG, um, uh, Boston, Boston Red Sox, like all these people just emailing out of the blue saying, I read your paper, can I buy one of these devices that you used to, to do your research? So by that stage, so how how uh, how 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 prevalent were hamstring injuries? I guess yes, at this point. yes. So you had all these professional teams. What 
Was that a major issue, minor issue? Yeah, so I probably skipped over that part. But the the whole uh, the whole idea of doing the um, the research in this area and the way those guys have always operated is they look at the big they try and look at the big problems in in elite sport and basically any sport that involves running. Um, hamstring injuries are usually number one, and if not, then number two or three biggest injury that occurs in those sports. So when you think basically any football code hamstrings are number one or if they're a contact sport it might be number two behind you know concussions or something like that so big big um injury uh problem and a problem that's probably not going to go away in a hurry and has been around for a long time it costs millions and millions of dollars and pounds and euros every year in lost salaries to players sitting on the bench um so yeah very sort of well-known issue and something that a lot of people have been trying to solve for a long time, but sort of coming coming up with practical ways of dealing with um, dealing with hamstring injuries and sort of pushing performance forward without creating additional injuries um, is sort of always the balancing act that they we've been striving for, um, that, or that everyone in sport has been striving for. So um, these guys, uh, Dr. Tony Shield and Dave Opar, they. This this is the angle that they were coming at it. This is the big problem. Everyone's having these things. No one's found a good solution for it. Everyone wants to test more and understand more, but there's no practical way of doing that day to day. So that was sort of what really started it all. And so that's the that's the path to basically increase performance is first of all diagnosing the problem, uh, getting more data on it, understanding you know baselines, all that kind of stuff, and then that is the the path that you can track. Well, this person's at risk. Uh, this person is, say, coming re- rehabilitation. This person's at a point that um, they can start increasing their load. Uh, and then that's how you, I guess, tracking as a, as a first point to increase performance. Yeah, exactly. So, so the starting point is just trying to, um, they identified an area that people were already interested in knowing more about, just didn't have really the means of, of measuring it. So their first step was to create something that could, uh, measure it more practically and then subsequently they've gone on to to publish research that's shown well once you've taken your measurements uh, what sort of levels of strength or asymmetry in strength between left and right limbs these sort of things how do they uh, influence the injury risk of athletes so that's the really sort of actionable point where a team can look at the research these guys have published and say I've, I've read the research I've got my Nord board um, so what does this mean for my, I've tested all my athletes, who's at risk, who's not at risk. And it's never as black and white as that, obviously, but they've now got a gauge at least um, where previously it was uh, a lot more uh, subjective than that or anything that was objective was a little further removed. Yep. Yeah, so the Nord board is just uh, for reference, the hamstring testing unit that you started, kind of started valid with and it was commercialized out um, of university research. Uh, how were hamstrings traditionally tested? Um, so before that, we sort of had two ends of a fairly wide spectrum, and that was sort of where where the the Nord board ended up landing in the middle. So at at one end, you had um, very sort of cheap and nasty devices. Um, the most common of which uh, would be uh, a handheld dynamometer. So it's basically a, a sensor in a little stick that you hold in your hand and you push that against something and it tells you how much force you're exerting. So you could measure someone's hamstring strength with one of those, but very hard to control. And if you're trying to hold down the the ankle of a, uh, say like a prop in rugby, an elite prop, um, and you've got a, a, a practitioner trying to do that who weighs half as much as a prop does, they're going to get flung across the room, basically. So is um, the, there were ways to be repeatable and reliable about that, but then as soon as you change to a different person doing the test, you get different results, all these sort of things. So uh, quite accessible, but not accurate or reliable. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have very lab-based devices like huge chairs that you'd sit down in. Um, they're called isokinetic dynamometers, um, like a super high-end version of the, the handheld version where you strap yourself into a chair, you lock down all the joints, and then a range of sensors can measure strength as you do all kinds of different movements. Um, the downside of those, they cost a phenomenal amount of money. You're looking at like $100,000 plus. 
and also you have to be pretty well trained to operate one and it's a good sort of 15 to 30 minute job just to assess one athlete and that just makes it completely impractical for elite sport if you look at the most extreme end of things like in college sport in the u.s like in college football their roster will swell to more than 100 athletes at certain times of the the, the season so at fifth at fifth even 15 minutes per athlete you're looking at like days to get testing done which is just never going to happen so um the often universities and teams would have these sort of things but they get used um only quite seldom um if there was someone who was injured or someone who was special enough to warrant it but not not wholesale so we it wouldn't be used preventatively either it would just be mainly for rehabilitation but yeah exactly prevention is prevention is better than a cure as with anything yeah exactly so that's where there was this sort of gaping gaping hole between these two two ends of the spectrum where the nord board which is our first product um really sat and that that sort of really kicked things off for us because there was this a, a big need a big problem with hamstring injuries and um and quite a nice and affordable and easy to use solution that the guys came up with and that we sort of um you know with a, a fair bit of luck and obviously some some hard work but definitely some luck as well managed to sort of take that to market and get a, a reasonable amount of traction with and that's the that's the thing that really started off us off as a business so so who are some of your clients today you mentioned that you were getting fielding calls uh, when that first uh, research was released who in in 2020, you working? Yeah, so so um, sort of right from the get go, a lot of the interest was from uh, the UK and then the high end sport in the in Australia. So some of our first clients were in the AFL and the Premier League. Um, so we're quite again, quite lucky that um, there was that existing interest before we even launched the Nord Board. But since then, um, I think we've we've done a, a pretty good job of capitalising on that. So. Now, um, every Premier League team is a client. Um, we're pretty proud of that one. Um, and uh, a bit more than half of the NFL in the States um, and a bit more of, than half of NBA, Major League Baseball, um, Major League Soccer, um, lower tier leagues in, in England, um, a spattering of uh, top, top flight um, soccer teams through Europe. Uh, and I think nearly all of the AFL and NRL as well in Australia. So um, in, in sporting terms, um, we've sort of got the, the big names, which has been really, really nice. And now our next sort of push is into um, how do we take these technologies and, and make them more accessible to kind of the next tier down, but then also to, to clinics and private gyms and things like that that are, that are working with kind of the, the next tier of athlete or the, the developing athlete. And then also your, your sort of, um, uh, your, your general punt, uh, punter who might be a weekend warrior or just into, um, exercise or just trying to get healthy or whatever it might be as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's something we'll talk about in a second. Before we do, I just want to understand some of your other products. So you start with the hamstring testing. Obviously, that was the, the the greatest need. That was the biggest issue. Like you said, um, kind of second only to in contact sports to things like concussion and things like that. Uh, from there, where has the product offering grown? Yeah, so the, so the Nordboard really um, sort of opened the door for us. Um, and we'd always had in mind that we would that if if that went well and if the business survived the first the the valley of death or whatever you, whatever they call it, um, we'd we'd sort of look to expand our product offering as well. So um, we, we were on the lookout already for what what were the other issues that um, our existing clients or the the Nordboard's um, original clients were, were were seeing as well. So we were sort of um, taking surveys of what what other problems they were seeing as well. So our second product um, was originally called the, um, which came off the back of the Nord board, was originally called the groin bar, um, which everyone generally chuckles at, but it was something that was uh, built to address groin and hip injuries, which is usually um, uh, one of the injury groups, again, in running-based sports or sports that have a lot of jumping or change of direction or anything like that. Um, usually just below hamstrings. Um, and there are some sports where it would sit higher in terms of uh, prevalence of injuries. So we're seeing that in a lot of our clients who are having a lot of groin and hip problems with their their athletes. So that was the next obvious um, area for us to address. And we could do it using a lot of the same technology from the Nord board. So they look like very different dev devices side by side, but sort of the guts of them and how they work 
um, is quite similar. So again, for a startup that was just trying to kind of bootstrap everything, uh, it was quite a, an obvious next step because we could translate the technology quite well, but still have a product that was brand new that, that wasn't, that hadn't been done before, that did things better than anything else had before. So again, we were looking at <clears throat> strength testing as a way of looking at um, either uh, monitoring for risk or rehabilitating from injury or whatever else that might be. So uh, we were able to get the 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 groin bar, which is now called the force frame because it's used for a lot more than just groins and hips. People test shoulders and uh, knees and ankles and all kinds of different joints on it as well. It's more of a modular strength testing system these days. Um, so that I understand um, that uh, we've chatted about this before yeah. that. Uh, the groin bar was being used by Major League Baseball to test shoulders. Uh, so I can understand why if you're uh, advertising a product as a groin bar yeah. and everyone's put their arm in it, yeah. it probably wouldn't take off. <laughs> yeah, so we, um, we, we named it the groin bar and we launched it. And then pretty soon afterwards, um, there were some baseball teams that said, hey, we could use that for internal, external shoulder rotation strength testing on our, on our pitches and our throwers. We thought, okay, we might have called this thing the wrong, the wrong name for starters. So, we've, um, yeah, we've we've gone through the whole rebrand, which was obviously a fun process, but um, but necessary. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, you know, we've been again probably quite lucky that the the groin bar now the force frame has been quite successful as well and adopted by a lot of the, a large majority of the same clients uh, that the Nord board was taken up by, but a lot of different ones as well. Sports like um, tennis and ice hockey and Sports that where um, groin and hip injuries are more prevalent than hamstrings, um, so that's been interesting to see as well. And then from there, um, our next two products that came along uh, were actually both acquired externally, um, so that they were the first time that we'd done that as a business. So uh, our third third product was um, Human Track, so it's a three D movement analysis system, which was initially designed and built by uh, a French biomechanist uh, Pierre Lagardec, who uh, uh, did his PhD in the UK in biomechanics, also studied computer engineering, built all the nuts and bolts of the human track system, which is extremely complex. He's a very smart guy. Um, and it was built sort of for uh, clinical biomechanical um, screening and testing. So, uh, so physios and um, general practitioners could sort of get um, the same sort of analysis that you would get in like a high-end research laboratory at a university um, in terms of motion tracking and movement, um, but much more compact, fit into a briefcase, could be um, and a lot more affordable, sort of one one-hundredth of the price. Again, sort of like the Nordboard, filling a gap between um, doing things by eye and the super, super high-end that, that your, your general pop physio um, couldn't or sporting team couldn't uh, couldn't afford or couldn't take the time to use. Um, so that was uh, a new addition in 2018 to the business. Um, and also sort of uh, had a lot more of a, a general health and clinical focus than the products that had come before it as well, which is a direction that we want to sort of head in, or we are heading in as a business as well, because there's a lot of overlap Rather between... Than, yeah. Yeah, because the, the, typically in elite sport, the, the people we're dealing with are... are usually um, strength and conditioning coaches, physiotherapists, um, high-performance directors, the very physical sort of disciplines within the sport. So they're dealing with the same sort of injuries that um, that uh, general population physiotherapists and S&C coaches and stuff would deal with as well. They're just doing it with you know, $20 million a year athletes. Um, the problems are exactly the same. The body breaks down the same way. You treat them the same way. Um, the the athletes might get more attention. There's more money poured into them, but it's the same problem. So we, we saw the crossover there quite early on. And so Human Track was our first sort of foray into that into that market. Um, and it's it's been interesting because it's definitely had the most uptake in in clinical land of all of our products. And it sort of, it, it has sort of, um, led the way. It's also the newest uh, newest technology, so it's got this big sort of, we've got this enormous list of things we want to do with it in the future that we're sort of just slowly ticking off as well. Um, so yeah, that was um, that was product number three for us. And then uh, 2018, um, we acquired another technology called Forstex, which are dual uh, force plates. So like really fancy kitchen scales, basically, or um, weighing scales um, that that we that you can jump on um, 
and do all, all kinds of different movements on. And then the real beauty of it is, is in the software, which basically takes the data that's being read out as you jump or push on them and uh, automatically detects what type of movement is being performed. So we can tell if it's a counter movement jump or a squat jump or a drop jump or an isometric test or a squat or whatever else it might be, automatically analyzes it, breaks down the different phases of the movement and gives you anywhere from sort of 50 to 200 different metrics automatically at the back of it. So that was a product that had actually been on the market already for a few years and we got to know uh, Dr. Daniel Cohen and Dr. Phil Graham Smith, the two inventors of that technology quite well in the years leading up to that. And we'd seen for quite a while that that was a pretty good fit for us. It just took a little while to kind of get all the all the minds to meet and us to agree that we we were sort of on on the same page and and move forward but so so dan and phil like like with um pierre with human track have come across and are a part of vold now as well and and force is uh sort of slotted in quite nicely along with the nordboard and force frame uh in in that it's got a, a huge amount of applicability in basically any running based sport so there's been a lot of our existing clients uh take up force decks and there's also a lot of force decks existing clients take up nord boards and force frames as well so do you see so out of those four products if we're going to put them into kind of the basket so the nord board is a hamstring tester the uh the artist formerly known as groin bar um, <laughs> as the kind of uh groin um shoulder uh movement uh human track and then uh the force plates force decks so three of those are very hands-on, physical, uh, in the sense of you manipulate the athlete, you physically manipulate the athlete, they do tests on that, whereas um, biomechanic testing is obviously um, less invasive, I guess, is, is how you would describe it. Do you see a trend in the industry, uh, probably at the elite performance level, we can kind of talk later about the lower levels and the, the practitioners and physios and things like that, but for the elite performance, do you see a trend towards less invasive in terms of what cameras can capture while the athlete is just performing? Or are there some things that you just actually have to physically manipulate the athlete, put pressure on them, make them do tests? Um, I think uh, the, the short answer is I think eventually you'll be able to do uh, personally i think eventually you'll be able to do just about everything without touching an athlete i think eventually camera technology and um even like you know uh you know implanted sensors and things like this will be able to do things that um that we can sort of see where it's heading today that that, uh, cameras and computer vision technology and things like that are getting better and better and better um, I think the the thing is that I think we're we're starting to see, I think people are starting to see. Oh, okay, this really there really is something to this, and and can see where it's going. Can see that there's that this is probably the future of it. I think the thing in practicality, I think it's going to be quite some time before we can really throw away all the the physical products. And I think it's it's sort of been reflected in what we've seen is that the these products that we that we produce, um, particularly the the Nordboard, the Force Frame, and the Force Dex, which use load cell technology, so load load measurement technology using um, strain gauges, is sort of the, the underlying technology that's been around for decades. That technology, so there's the the way it's been put together, and obviously we use very modern sensors, but the underlying technology has been there for a long time, and there's no real sign of it going away in a hurry. Um, and there hasn't been anything surpass using that sort of technology for measuring those kind of things just yet. Um, and I th- so I think I think where it's going to is that um, things like um, com- computer vision, and then we obviously look at things like what Apple and Facebook and these sort of companies are doing with like the time of flight infrared cameras, which are obviously a step beyond just your standard computer vision. Um, like very, very powerful stuff happening even just now, um, but a lot of it's not... Um, not ex- not ex- accessible yet, um, and I think there are quite a few more steps we have to go through before we're really getting that sort of um, picture of what's happening, um, you know, joint by joint, muscle by muscle in in an athlete. And some there's some really complex things that need to be figured out between now and then. But I think there's it's it's something where you know if we if we fast forwarded. 
20 years, I think I think we'd be in, into the ballpark, maybe 10, maybe I'm underestimating, who knows, maybe even five if it's a, if there are sort of quantum quantum leaps taken. But I think we're sort of at Vold, we're sort of of the opinion that eventually at least some of our technologies are probably going to be made obsolete. Um, but And this is something we're absolutely keeping an eye on and I don't think it's necessarily a threat to us. We're just sort of looking at where we as a company will be going and the the industry as a whole will be going and i think that there's every expectation that some that eventually five ten fifteen years down the road some of our technologies are going to be made obsolete but um i think for now the way generally how we do things is pretty much the gold standard for field field based testing but again it's changing so rapidly that um that it's it's not going to stay that way forever yeah, and there's obvious issues with computer vision uh, around latency in terms of, yes, you can record an athlete doing something, but the amount of processing power that needs to go into that for a practitioner standing next to an athlete to give them instant feedback. Whereas with physical manipulation, uh, jump on a, say, one of the force decks, they do a jump, it appears on a screen, you do that. I've, I've also seen uh, use cases of some of your products where athletes are competing against each other so there's something around hamstring strength. You'll have everyone's Nordboard results up on a projector in a kind of graph uh, that goes up and you go, all right, well, I'm here. I need to get here. So gamifying the process, uh, which obviously with elite athletes, you put any kind of competition in front of them. They're going to run towards yeah, it uh, well. as hard as they can. Uh-huh. Yes. So the second question around trends, and this kind of comes back to what you were talking about, the strategy with... Uh, the motion sense, uh, the tracking solution that came from much more the practitioner side rather than the elite elite side. What would your advice be to other sports technology uh, companies, startups, big, small, uh, in the human performance space? There's obviously a very, very strong pull to go for the elites. It's that what you get on your on your website, on your on your slide deck, on your, mm. your pitch deck if you're raising money is, I have these NFL teams, I have these Premier League teams. It's the gold standard because they are the gold standard in terms of what the, the investment they're putting into their athletes. But there's only so many elite teams in the world. So in terms of market addressability, you will eventually reach a ceiling. You can obviously sell them other products as you guys have done. Mm. Do you think that that needs to be the first step and then expand into allied health, other areas of, uh, of practitioners, or is it one of those things that you can go straight into that area? Uh, Where, where's the kind of strategy behind it? Yeah, I think, so for us, it, it, it certainly, I don't think it started with a sort of a, a strategy of we'll do this first and then we'll do this and then we'll do this necessarily. That For us, the we were, when I say us, I mean sort of, uh, Laurie, our CEO, was co-founder um, with me and, and us. We were trying to basically build this business um, out of a, a, pro- a great prototype and a great idea previously. Um, the the pool was already there to take it into elite sport um, and obviously pretty exciting area to go into. There was all this interest there already. So that was the obvious starting point for us. And I think from that immediately, we could see that if we could crack elite sport and we could impress the practitioners that worked in elite sport who were very, very skeptical, very discerning, very critical of new things and, um, and have been, um, have been fed bullshit in the past and they, and they can sniff it out a mile away. If we could sort of impress them, then translating that into a more mass market technology might be the easier approach to go about it. Um, and, and that was sort of the natural path that we saw it taking. Uh, but it, I don't think it's going to be that way for, for every startup by any means. And, and I think um, we were, as sort of sports fans ourselves, we were lucky that our first, the first market that we were drawn into was elite sports. So, you know, we got to go visit NBA teams and NFL teams and Premier League teams and all this sort of stuff. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't the reason we went there first. We went there first because they're the people who wanted the product um, first. And again, we're lucky that because we're sports fans, that was really cool, and you get tickets to games every now and then and things like that. But I don't think that's a that's a good reason to be doing it. And I think there's um, the the problem with going after elite sport first. Um, as if I was to look at 
you know, as a whole new new companies in, entering the industry is that you can be like you can just you can get ch- ch- um, chewed up and spat out very easily in elite sport if you if you sort of have a few of the wrong people unimpressed by what you've got to offer. Um, it's a fairly small community and uh, word can get around if you rub someone up the wrong way or your product doesn't work well or it's buggy or whatever else it is. Um, it, it You can sort of develop the wrong type of reputation pretty quickly, which makes it really hard. And again, I think it's why um, um, we're, we're, you know, We've, why we've had success and there's definitely some luck in that, uh, but obviously a lot of hard work as well that, that we've managed to um, have our first product impress the right people that we've been able to springboard off that. But uh, certainly in terms of um, new, new companies entering the market, I think there's always a lot of room for taking existing technologies or things that are being done at the high end, like in elite sport, um, universities, research labs, all those sort of things, and trying to come up with ways of translating that, either using the same technology uh, scaled down or made cheaper or done a different way to achieve the same outcome and trying to get that um, across the masses as well. And I think it's something where if you're offering something that does much of the same thing but for significantly lower price... Um, you've got more. You've got more wiggle room in terms of something that it doesn't need to be absolutely hundred hundred percent perfect. If it's the only thing that can make that sort of technology or that sort of uh, data or that sort of function accessible to like your local your local rugby league club or whatever it might be, um, then they're going to be significantly less discerning about the product working absolutely perfect every time. It's more about just actually getting access to it in the first place. Um, but I think, yeah, it's probably a really um, fence-sitting way of answering the question, but it's sort of horses for courses a bit. I think depending on the, the product, some just absolutely make sense and are at a price point and a, a, a level of functionality and complexity that just makes sense to go um, go to elite sport. And if they're not proven there, then they'll never work. Um, but then there are other things uh, where I think the, the innovation is more in the translation of very high-end technologies or very expensive technologies into more mass market and consumer that makes sense to go more from the ground up. And they're things where um, you could have something that's hugely, hugely successful at a grassroots level that the elite sport never has a particular interest in because for, for they, they can probably get something 50% better they might pay they might pay twenty times as much to get that extra fifty percent, but they don't care if it means that they they're winning more games, keeping athletes healthier. Ultimately, if they can, if they're absolutely certain that it's having the right result, um, to some extent, money is no issue. It's 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 an over exaggeration, but it's there are times when it is true when basically money just rains from the skies when it's for the right product um, in elite sport. But it doesn't necessarily happen that way at the grassroots. What well, obviously doesn't happen that way. So it's it's to understand that. So it's, it's two options, I guess. Is one going to the elite level uh, and having the halo effect and really having the best product at the elite level. It's it's pretty much a zero sum game, as you said. It's a small community. If it's going to be the best product, teams will jump on board. Uh, sometimes at a t- tipping point, you know, something like the Premier League, you get a certain amount of the clubs. The rest of clubs just have to have it because everyone else has got it if it's if it's showing those results. And then you can push that down to the grassroots because it has that halo effect of elite sports and everyone in the same way that uh, you know, shoes, for instance, uh, everyone wants to wear the shoes that their, their, their favourite player's wearing. People want to have the tech now and consumers are a lot more savvy about having that, whereas... Five ten years ago, it was uh, it was very much out of reach. And then I, I guess the other option is taking something that is at the elites, innovating it to a lower price point, putting it through the grassroots, and possibly a third area which we haven't talked about is still the consumer side, but uh, something that's a problem in basically every uh, kind of Western uh, economy um, and. Actually, a lot of economies around the world. World War II, baby boomer generation, baby boom in the 1950s and 60s. Everyone after World War II was like, let's have lots of kids. What that translates to now, now that we're, you know, 70 years down the track, 80 years down the track, uh, a lot of old people 
lot of lot of uh, geriatrics, a lot of uh, old people that have had a fairly high standard of living, have a large disposable income still, will happily spend a lot of money to stay in their homes. Then there's opportunity around keeping that population healthy, uh, keeping them mo- mobile. It's certainly not as uh, glamorous as pro sports, <laughs> being able to say that your product is used by... Uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback, uh, but if it if it keeps grandma in the in the home for an extra year or two, uh, then that from a business point of view is is certainly a a big area. Yeah, definitely for sure, and I think that's um, uh, to be honest for for us as a business, that's probably the most exciting area um, for us that we're heading into now. Uh, again, we're we're all sports fans, so we all like working with. Uh, with our elite clients, that's that's sort of always a sexy part of the job. But it's also something that's probably um, it's it's probably reached a level where it's it's not going to change hugely in the in the future. We'll probably have new products, new offerings, those sort of things. But um, I think the real growth for the business is into this uh, this more general general population, and that's via your your your, your very sort of general practitioner physios. And um, hospitals and things like that, and and it's funny that you mentioned the sort of the the aging population and sort of keeping them healthy and disposable income because this is something where um, one our most recent product actually so it's our, um, our fifth one to hit the market actually our sixth but um, our fifth one we're basically giving away for free which is also de- um, uh, designed for physio clinics as well but our our sixth product is it's um, uh, basically wirelessly controlled. Uh, blood flow restriction cuffs for occlusion training and the science behind that is it basically if you occlude the blood flow to the limb you can get a lot of uh, to the arm or the leg that's being occluded you can get some really nice um, strength and muscle growth benefits with significantly lower weights than you would have to use otherwise and when we've got an aging population that um, with uh, deteriorating joints and ligaments and tendons um, and a lot of muscle wastage and then uh, pathologies that go along with that in terms of falls risk, um, arthritis, all kinds of things like that, um, improving how they exercise and retain strength um, has pretty big implications. And also in terms of how, um, uh, I guess, that translates across our existing uh, existing um, client base with, uh, again, looking at similar sort of issues with someone who's injured, who can't exercise the way they, they usually can, even if they're an elite athlete. Um, and so we, we're, we've now got this, this product called Airbands, um, which again was actually acquired in externally. It was invented by a guy called Joseph Marcus based on the Gold Coast, so much closer to home than our, our previous acquisitions. Um, and Joey's moved into head office in, in Brisbane with us now. Um, and basically, this is a much more a consumer end product. So, where all, all of our, uh, our four initial products, um, they're sort of they're in the, the thousands of dollars per year to, to lease or get access to those, um, which is significantly lower than a lot of their alternatives. But definitely not, you're not. It's not your, your your general your general punter or weekend warrior who's, yeah, who's gran- buying grandma's uh, grandma wants to stay in her home, but she's not a, about to drop a couple of grand on uh, a four step. Exactly, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, so it's this is something where we're in um, the airbands are a um, couple of hundred bucks for a set. Um, so it's something that uh, uh, either a physio can have a, a number of pairs on hand that they can lend out to their clients, uh, or clients can buy them themselves and. It's something that can make a fairly big impact on how someone exercises and the outcomes that they get from that, um, and and we're doing it in in a way that's um, again the, the underlying technology um, blood flow restriction training has been there for quite a long time now, and the, the evidence base is enormous these days, um, and the, there are other technologies that do similar sort of things in terms of um, yeah basically reducing the blood the the venous return blood flow from a limb. Um, but basically what we've taken is, is um, uh, the existing technology made them a lot faster and easier to use. So you control the pressure from your phone, it automatically calibrates to your individual pressure and then gives you recommendations on the sort of um, levels of pressure that you would want to set for your arms and your legs when you're training. And, um, and we know based on those thresholds and the research has been published that you get some really nice um, benefits for that. So we're sort of... Um, 
it's it's another uh, another sort of step removed from our existing technologies, but again, a lot of um, applicability um, across the sort of people that we've worked with in the past as well. So we're getting a lot of interest from our existing clients who are doing um, uh, blood flow occlusion training already, but doing it with very clunky or very uh, very expensive uh, or very cheap and nasty systems, sort of one end or the other again. Um, and airbands being something that's like really quick and easy to use uh, and adjust and and adapt to what you're doing. There's the existing interest there from our um, uh, from our existing customers, which is again with that crossover where the the interest was for us. But then it also has these really exciting applications both in a market that we're only starting to move into, being the more general population health and physiotherapy and, and hospital and, and um, uh, sort of general population uh, market that we're heading into, but also more at the consumer end, which is something that we haven't, haven't yeah. dabbled in yet. So to, so to analogize, I, I think something about a heart rate, uh, blood, sorry, blood pressure cuff. So for anyone who's been to a doctor, you get the cuff on and inflates, then it measures your blood pressure. So if you're, say, diabetic or unhealthy and you need to, or any other health issues, uh, you need to measure your uh, heart rate. You got, uh, sorry, heart, blood pressure. So high blood pressure, low pressure, whatever it is. Traditionally, you would go into the doctor and they would get there, they would put the cuff on you, they would have a little dial with numbers, they would hand pump it, and then they would look at the dial and count it down, record that uh, once upon a time on paper. Obviously, then that moved to, to computer. It was still the same thing. As he said, kind of a very basic tool. Then that moved to in the doctor's surgery, they had a electronic version. They would still hand pump it, but then you get an electronic region out. Then that moved to everything was electronic. It would inflate itself, deflate itself. It would give you the reading. And now it's at the point that they're fairly ubiquitous in people's homes. You can go to your local uh you know, local store, health store, pharmacist, whatever, and purchase one. So then you don't have to keep going to the doctor. You can lodge that. So I would say that's a, a low-tech general medical version of, of something like the blood uh, band restrictions where the science is there, the solution's there. It's just making it much more accessible and much more practical and much more high-tech but accessible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I think for, for us, it filled a, filled a nice gap as well because, again, you, you go into the doctor or you, um, you have your blood pressure cuff that, that reads your blood pressure. Um, but then, and, and that's, uh, that's sort of the origin of where this, this sort of style of training with uh, occluded blood flow came from uh, was using um, blood pressure cuffs. Uh, but so you get your measurement there, but then separately there's obviously these nice um, – health and performance and and strength kind of benefits that you can get from uh from doing exercise with with uh the equivalent of a blood pressure cuff um restricting the blood flow to your limbs obviously we don't restrict it fully obviously that's very unsafe but it's it's partial restriction which has some really nice um benefits to it and uh and really it's taking something that was uh, that's something that's sort of grown in popularity, particularly over the last five years, but over over the last dec- few decades, realistically, um, and and making it something that can be very easily controlled, something could be quite step by step to walk someone through how to how to use it, and it's a fairly natural progression from what someone might um, uh, might experience at their um, at their clinic or with their physio or. Uh, with their strength coach or whatever it might be, so it, it, it lends itself to people if if it's appropriate to them owning their own pair and using it when they're travelling to get a bit of an extra boost out of exercising in their hotel room, all the way through to, you know, I've I've been injured and I can't load my my uh, my legs properly because my left knee's busted, so I'm going to do some occlusion training to get um get similar sort of benefits at significantly lower lower uh, weights. And there's a lot of those sort of applications there. And it, it sits in that nice sort of area um, between the high end and the low end with some, not, not having something previously that had quite satisfied this need quite as nicely as Airbands does. So that's why we sort of jumped at it when we did, despite the fact it's, it's a consumer product, not a B2C product like our existing products. It's, um, it's more based around training rather than testing, which other products are based on. Uh, but there is this very nice progression from where we're, we're already sort of fairly well established in the testing and monitoring and assessment space. 
And the next progression from that is, well, I've tested, I understand where my patient's at or where my athlete's at. Um, now I want to do something about that. I want to help them improve. So training is a natural part of that. And blood flow restriction training is something that's got a lot of interest and this is something that's making it more accessible to them as well. And it also ties in with our, um, uh, our, our other most recent product as well, which launched around the same time Airbands did, which is called Telehab, which is a, uh, a remote exercise prescription platform, which basically allows um, physios, strength coaches, um, people who have patients or clients or athletes who are doing exercise when they're, they're not in person with them. So they can remotely prescribe an exercise program, have them uh, be walked through it on their phone remotely. Uh, they can ask that the athlete or the patient film themselves while they're doing their exercises and then it's all uploaded and sliced and their pain levels are reported and their completion rates and all that sort of stuff so they can get some visibility on what they're doing outside of the clinic. And then you start to see there's this nice sort of cycle of when the athlete or the patient is in person with the practitioner, they can test them, they can use all of our you know fairly high-end equipment, you know, test their hamstring strength on the Nord board, test their, their jumps on the four steps, movement on human track. And then when they leave, obviously they're not going to have access to those things at home, but they can still have control over the exercise they're doing. If they're in rehab, which is a very common scenario across all of our clients from general population up to the very highest end athletes, they're often doing exercise away from one of their coaches or their practitioner. Um, they can yeah, use air bands to get um, some additional benefit, which would be a common application for that. But then the their coach or their practitioner can also get, get eyes on them and get more measurable feedback on how they're progressing as well so we we, uh, this is all which is also a another another application that's true for elite athletes Mm -hmm. and then also general population or say older population that they may not be able to get to see their practitioner as much as they want to uh, but still be able to be in touch and communicate with them yeah well i mean it's uh, without heading down heading down another rabbit hole but i think telehealth is is another huge area that's going to impact um, this industry as well, and it, and it feeds back into the computer vision and everything else that we were speaking about earlier. That um, I think the uh, telehealth is obviously driven by a very sort of epidemiological level, trying to give more people access to better healthcare and reduce uh, costs at a governmental level, and um, just generally improve standard of health and all those sort of things. But it does tie in a lot with a lot of the technologies and development development that's going on at the performance end of elite sport as well, where as cameras get better, as sensors get better, um, and they become cheaper and more ubiquitous and more accessible, it means they can be in the hands of um, general practitioners, your local physio clinic. It can be something that they can roll out to their clients. Um, and the computer vision, obviously, the, the hardware involved in using that is... Uh, very cheap. Most most people own it already. It's a phone, it's a computer, whatever else it might be. Um, that's not to say developing the software is cheap, but um, it does make it a very scalable sort of area to be working in. And I think that's, um, again, you can see this sort of convergence of all the different technologies coming together and going across a lot of different industries with, with elite sport and health and just general sort of fitness and health and well-being, so all kind of benefiting from these things, but not also not, not all necessarily in the same solution. You know, um, at one end, we're looking at tracking players in a stadium and looking at, you know, who's one centimetre in front of another for an offside uh, uh, or something like that, all the way through to like, you know, how, how deep is my grandma squatting when she's... Um, when she's uh, doing a doing a rehab at home, and is that be- better than last week or worse, and things like that? So, this is sort of what we're what we're heading towards, and we certainly haven't tied it all in a nice little neat bow yet. But we're we're sort of heading in that direction, and we're we're trying to offer get to the point where we offer a fairly well rounded solution uh, for uh, we, we we would generally call them health and performance practitioners. So they're they're people with often the same qualifications or the same job title but they might work in elite sport or they might be treating general population or they might um whatever that might be but it's typically physiotherapists strength and conditioning coaches sports scientists things um things like that cool well final question for you uh thanks so much for your time today as well gotta say what is your favorite sporting moment of all time oh good question 
Great, great question. I wish you'd told me that beforehand. I would have given that some thought. Um, well, that's the point. It's got to be. It's got to be off the cuff. Got to well, get I'm, you. Yeah. So I, I'm. I'm a. I'm a well and truly former swimmer. Um, that was sort of my sport of choice back in the day. We spent a lot of time talking at football, both horrible coordination and um, hand-eye coordination and ball skills. Anyone else involved can tell you that. Um, but yeah, I was a swimmer back in the day. I was. I think I was 13 at the 2000 Olympics, and I think. Um, the men's four by hundred relay when the Aussies beat the uh, the Yanks for the first time in Olympic history and Thorpe anchored our, our our boys to victory would probably be number one for me. Still get goosebumps thinking about that one, but uh, yeah, that's probably it for me. Maybe there's something better, but you it's, put me on the spot. No, no, that's that's great. I think that's great. Bit of Australian pride. Get one back against the Americans. So that's it. I'll put a link. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for anyone who <laughs> doesn't doesn't remember that hasn't seen it 2000 sydney olympics hometown crowd in That's thorpe it. the thorpedo uh he would have been young then as well and that oh, was uh yeah he would have been was he wearing the was he wearing the the super suit the uh, yeah i think i think they just they'd just come in at that stage um so he would have been poor i want to say 18 at that stage something like that yeah yeah, fantastic stuff. Yeah. Well, I'll put it. I'll put a link to that and a link to some of the other things that we've talked about, and some of the uh, things about foul uh, overall, and the background in tech. Some of the things from QUT uh, in terms of commercializing out products. So, awesome. you can have a look at that. And thank you again for for joining us on the show today. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. That was Sam James from Val Performance sharing his insights for anyone building a company in the sports performance space. Also some interesting points around how computer vision is going to change the game in terms of athlete testing, uh, but it's still quite a few years away from replacing the more traditional physical uh, manipulation tools. In a bit of a change of speed, next week we have Tim Hayden, co-founder of Stadia Ventures, a sports and esports accelerator and investment fund. So they've been operating for five years. They've got some really interesting insights of the growth in the industry along the way and also just some great tips for any startup founders uh, looking to grow a company in, in sports or esports. You can check on show notes and more episodes at sportstechfeed.com. Until next week, I've been your host, Thomas Loams. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.